0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Thursday, June 9th, 2022, and this date has been circled on our calendars for some time because, of course, uh, the January 6th committee will be holding its first primetime televised hearing. Expectations are, on the one hand, very high because we don't really know uh, how powerful and compelling the, the case will be. On the other hand, I think that there's a certain realism, maybe fatalism settling in that that it might not actually change the political dynamic. There are so many other things going on, including um, apparently a plot to assassinate a city member of the Supreme Court. The president of the United States goes on Jimmy Kimmel's show. I'm checking my notes here. Uh, the, the House of Representatives hears absolutely riveting, compelling testimony on gun safety legislation and then you know votes on that. Uh, But apparently the vast majority of Republicans remain completely unmoved. I I think uh, only 10 Republicans in the House voted for what I would think of as pretty much a white bread proposal to uh, raise the the age limit for buying AR-15s from 18 to 21. So to hash all of this out, we are joined by one of our favorite guests on the podcast, Karen Tumulty, Deputy Editorial Page Editor at The Washington Post and columnist covering national politics. Karen Welcome back to the podcast.
1: It is great to be here. Thank you for having me on, Charlie.
0: So, where should we start with all of this? Because there's there's so much going on, and I want to do you know get your thoughts about what you're looking at in the uh, the January sixth hearings tonight. But I, I I do feel the need to sort of start with this. I just think of it as an ominous story. Uh, we have all of these red flags about uh, the possibility of political violence in our society and. We have a clearly, you know, mentally um, challenged a young man who was plotting to assassinate a sitting member of the Supreme Court, and I, I keep thinking of that piece that David Graham wrote for the Atlantic, saying, you know, maybe we have just been lucky so far that we have not had a spate of, of political assassination. So just put this in context, I and mean, you know, the the fact that. With with all of the passions rising, Roe versus Wade, gun control. This twenty-something guy gets in a car, drives from or travels—I don't know if he drove—you know—travels from California with guns to kill Brett Kavanaugh.
1: You know, we we have had violence against judges in the past, federal judges. One of the earliest stories I covered in San Antonio when I was a cub reporter was an assassination of a federal judge, but it was usually retribution for, you know, a specific ruling that a judge may have made in a specific case, you know, uh, against a mob boss or a drug gang or something like that. This, this, I do think is something very, very different. It, Uh, You know, I'm sure there were threats against Earl Warren after Brown versus Borg. But there is now a media ecosystem that amplifies them, that allows disturbed individuals to find community. And, um, you know, so I think that it would be helpful if public officials and people who have influence would watch their words a little better but I don't have much hope of that. So I I think immediately Congress needs to pass legislation that increases the security for the Supreme Court and, you know, probably other federal judges as well. And, you know, I think you start with making the police force that guards the Supreme Court justices, I mean, put it on par, at least with the Capitol police.
0: Yeah, which obviously had its own flaws. And we saw just recently this uh, Department of Homeland Security memo that was obtained by Axios, that the the government is bracing for a potential surge in political violence once the court hands down the Roe versus Wade decision. And this individual, whose name we don't need to mention, but he believed that uh, Kavanaugh was going to overturn Roe and that he also thought that Kavanaugh would side with Second Amendment decisions that would loosen gun control laws. I mean, how, how, boy, talk about, strange flexes that you're concerned about loosening gun control laws so you take a gun to kill somebody.
1: And there were also, though, getting to the level of, you know, disturbance of this individual, there are also reports, and again, we're still early here, but that this was also an individual who had suicidal thoughts and who somehow thought that this violent act would give his life meaning. Significance, mm-hmm. and you know, I think that, in fact, gets you to you know the sort of fundamental problem that is going on within this person.
0: This seems to be the the obvious segue to talk about the, the violence that occurred on January sixth, but I, but I want to hold off on that because let's stay with the the issue of of guns for for just a moment because I, I keep thinking in the back of my mind, you know, we're supposed to have moved on after three days, and 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 we haven't. I was struck by how really you know, powerful the testimony was yesterday, um, but I won't say that I was surprised by the fact that Republicans appear to be unmoved. Uh, but it is interesting. Uh, the, the, the Democrats broke up their gun package into discrete packages that, that made it, you know, in theory, made it harder to vote against, like raising the age. And yet the vast majority of Republicans wouldn't vote for anything. I mean, this is just the reality that that no matter what happens, no matter how great the horror is, that they will not budge from those preordained talking points.
1: Yeah, I I think that guns, I mean, as much as they talk about the Second Amendment and I just think that guns have become political signifiers, which side of the divide you're on and you know, it's fortunate that I think most of the public is, is moved beyond where most of the politicians are here.
0: I think that's true, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything will happen. Um, Karen, I've lost track of days. Um, <laughs> I was going to say yesterday, but I think it was the day before yesterday. You had kind of a, an interesting, unusual moment at the White House where they brought in actor uh, Matthew McConaughey, who talked about uh, the shooting in his hometown of Uvalde. And he was, um, uh, I would say, unusually graphic in his description. And I think that he talked about something that most people in politics and frankly in the media are reluctant to talk about. So let's listen to something that McConaughey said from the podium at the White House.
2: We also met a cosmetologist. She was well-versed in mortuary makeup. That's the task of making the victims appear as peaceful and natural as possible for their open casket viewings. These bodies were very different. They needed much more than makeup to be presentable. They needed extensive restoration. Mm. Why? Due to the exceptionally large exit wounds of an AR-15 rifle. Most of the body so mutilated that only DNA tests or green converse could identify them. Mm. many children were left not only dead, but hollow. So yes, counselors are going to be needed in Uvalde for a long time.
0: So Karen, there was a uh, sort of a side debate about whether or not showing pictures would make any difference. I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic on it. I, I just, you know, I I personally raised it just like, what, what is it going to take for people to confront the reality of this? But you know, what he's describing is something beyond our just grimmest imaginations. And yet, obviously, we have a political class that is still in denial about that. That's I mean, you're, you're, you're it was it was interesting that the the McConaughey was was willing to articulate something that I think a lot of people have just glossed over because it's just too hard to talk about or think about.
1: And I agree. I, I am torn about whether You know, this is an Emmett Till moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, His mother, Emmett Till, in the mid-50s, was his mother was so brave to show her son's mutilated body to the world. Um, You know, and as Matthew McConaughey was talking, his wife was sitting there in the briefing room with that pair of green Converse sneakers on her lap. Um, I do think, though, that the words are important here to describe this. And we heard some of that in the testimony yesterday as well. I mean, people need to be forced to get the mental image of these these tiny little bodies with these gigantic exit wounds.
0: I just, I wonder whether or not we've just become so numbed that even that wouldn't make a difference.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe.
0: Know. So you did something very interesting. Um you you wrote about an interview that you did with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Uh you sat down with him 10 days after the uh, 2018 shooting at Marjory uh, Stoneman Douglas High School in in Florida. And uh and Abbott uh was in Washington for the annual governors meeting. And so you and uh, Dan Balls sat down for an interview about the shooting that left 14 students, 3 staff members dead. And Just talk to me a little bit about that, because that sounds like a very different Greg Abbott than the Greg Abbott we've been seeing since the massacre in Uvalde.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it really wasn't that long ago. And at that point, you know, this horrific shooting in uh, Florida had just happened. Just a few months in the future was the massive school shooting in Texas at Santa Fe, There had been a big church shooting in Texas, and Abbott at that point was really open to measures, including a red flag law, which is something Texas does not have. And after the Santa Fe shooting, he actually proposed that to the legislature, not that they do it, just that they even consider it. And he got such pushback that he dropped it. And ultimately, you know, there was a lot of talk, as there is now, about quote-unquote hardening schools, turning them into fortresses. The fact is, Texas won't spend that kind of money on its schools. They spent $100 million on school security, which is, it works out to, I, I talked to the head of the school superintendents association, the allocation of money to school security in texas as much as the politicians love to talk about this they will allocate less than ten dollars per student to school security
0: yeah they took a good game i mean i i do think it's interesting that there was it's, it's sort of like reading your, your piece about him as just a kind of a reminder that even in you know, even for these politicians that have become so locked in that that somewhere deep inside they understand that something needs to be done so you know when you talked to him after parkland he said you know that that oftentimes in life there's some event that's a catalyst to change i think this will be a catalyst to change i really do feel there will be changes and improvements in the way we address this issue going forward um and yet like so often it that, that evaporates and as you point you know 3 months before you talked to him You had another guy with an assault rifle go into that Baptist church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, and fired 700 rounds in 11 minutes, killed 26 people. So it is not like Texas has not seen this horror up front over and over again. I mean, three months after that, you have a 17-year-old kid use a rifle and a pistol to kill eight students and two teachers in Santa Fe. So, I mean... I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I struggle and I've talked about this before. I struggle with the cynicism of, of, of uh, seeing this and the way in which the politicians rationalize complete inaction. And I think we're seeing that played out. Where do you come down on whether or not the Senate will come up with a deal? There's there's lots of optimistic talk. There seems to be good faith negotiations is this time different over there in the Senate.
1: I, you know, I actually am a little bit optimistic that there might be some marginal kind of things passed. I, I guess the lowest common denominator here is raising the age for purchase of an assault yeah. weapon. I mean, if they can't do even that. And again, would it stop all of these shootings? No, but when you see how the numbers have shifted in the last couple of decades, starting with Columbine, how many people who are in that very short age range of their lives of late teens who are committing so many of these acts, it just seems like such a no brainer to do that. And no, it won't prevent everyone from, from doing that. And, you know, the school shooter in Connecticut, Newtown was in this age range and, you know, he took his mother's guns, but it shows something and maybe it'll stop something.
0: Well, I I agree with that. I mean, I, I think you can't make the, you know, the perfect, the enemy of the good, and you can't reject, um, you you can't reject remedies because they are not complete solutions. I mean, that's a fallacy. It's a, and and, and you see this over and over again, that if you could reduce it by 10%, go for it, do that. Okay. You, you, you may not be able to have changed the, the rest of it, but at least do that. So Karen, in the middle of all of this, you have the president of the United States sitting down with Jimmy Kimmel for an interview. What was the thinking behind having the president who doesn't give that many interviews sit down with Jimmy Kimmel? I mean, I'm mean, i not complaining about it. I'm just, I, it was obviously interesting. It was like, okay, so let's make people forget that he's really, really old and not very cool. Or what, I mean, what, what was that about?
1: Well, he's trying to go to his audience where so, it is. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that, the, the first president we really saw do that aggressively was Barack Obama. Very, very often would go around the sort of traditional, I, I mean, he, I hate to say it, as much as we'd love to sit down with him here at the Washington Post or the New York Times or even a network news show, he's not going to reach the same audience. And I, I think he should sit yeah. down yeah. everywhere he can and talk.
0: Well, let's play a little uh, soundbite because he's complaining about um, the media. Uh, he's asked. He's, he's talking about uh, the uh, his inability, or maybe his failure, to get the message uh, across. And of course, there have been multiple reports that he is uh, increasingly frustrated about that. So, this is uh, this is an ex- you know part of the exchange that uh, the president of the United States had with Jimmy Kimmel last night. No so, question about So, there's about a it. lot of
2: major things we've done. But
0: what we haven't done is we haven't
2: been able to communicate it in a way that is, uh, um, let me say it another way. Well, see, that's kind of perfect. Yeah, well, we haven't been able to communicate But it look how way. the press has changed. Mm-hmm. Look how the press has changed. It has changed. Oh, listen, it's, I, it's, I get it. I know you, get, you overstand it. Yeah. You don't just understand it, you overstand <laughs> it. But here's the deal. One of the things is that it's very difficult now to have a... Um, even with notable exceptions, even the really good reporters, they have to get the number of clicks on on, the, on nightly news. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking a question, anyway, it just everything gets gets sensationalized in ways. That, but I'm convinced we can get through this. We have to get through it.
0: Okay, so there's a critique of the media, uh, Karen Tumulty. What do you think? Fair, not fair?
1: Um, that they have to sensationalize. I I don't think that. You know, how, how do you sensationalize a, an interview with Joe Biden? I don't know. But um, I yes, the, the media ecosystem has changed dramatically. But I think the the bigger problem here is that, again, the traditional channels don't reach people the way they used to. And also that that people consume their media to reinforce what they already believe rather than opening their minds to something else.
0: Well, there's something else though, though. He's, he's projecting that the, the problem is the media and I'm, I'm willing to spend an entire podcast being you a know, critic of the media and, you know, the way the, the, the media has changed in that particular way. But, but what I didn't hear was, you know, the responsibility and the failures of his own white house, his own administration Because the problems that Joe Biden and the Democrats are facing are not simply uh, artifacts of the media culture, are they? I mean, clearly there are there are things that they have done and failed to do. And it did sound like he was blaming somebody else for for those problems.
1: I spend way too much time on Twitter And I I often see liberals making the argument that if the media would just quit talking about inflation, it wouldn't be such an issue. And you're like, what? People don't notice what groceries cost. They don't notice how much it costs to fill their car. And yes, there are so many of these forces that are beyond the president's control. I mean, the price of gasoline, the majority of the increase comes because of, you know, the disruption in the world oil markets in part because of the war in Ukraine. But, you know, the fact is there are a few things. For instance, we have been um, arguing in the Washington Post, in our editorials, that Biden should lift Donald Trump's tariffs on China and that that could help lower prices. It would not make everyone in his own party happy, but it would help marginally on the cost of living for a lot of people. I mean there are things that they can do that they haven't done. Well, and also
0: I I get the sense that he has decided not to use his bully pulpit as aggressively as former presidents have done. I I certainly understand that he doesn't want to be, you know, Donald Trump in your face in your consciousness all the time. But on the other hand, there have been very few uh, primetime addresses and he has not I guess you know even as president he hasn't seized center stage and then of course there's this this uh, unfortunate uh, pattern that's been created where he will come out and say something forceful and then his own white house will walk it back which seems to reinforce some of the negative narratives uh, about the presidency I mean Those are that's not the media's uh, issue. Those are decisions being made in this White House, aren't they?
1: Yeah. And some and sometimes the White House has walked it back when Biden has come out and actually told the truth.
0: Yes. You know,
1: we would like to see regime change in in Moscow. Um, I,
0: I don't want to say let Biden be Biden, but there are moments where you go, okay, here he had this moment of clarity and everything. Do not cut him off at the knees. His own people should not cut him off at the knees
1: yeah and exactly. And you know, when you see the efforts to manage the principle like this, it's it's never good.
0: Okay, so uh, thoughts about this Tuesday's elections, uh, particularly in California, where you had the uh, more conservative candidate for mayor leading the ballot in Los Angeles, and then you had the absolute thumping of the uber progressive da in san francisco so what is the relevance of this to the national democratic messaging problem because it it certainly seemed to be a stark message to democrats that at least in part obviously you know it's about inflation stupid but it's also about crime stupid and uh, when you have even the liberal voters of san francisco saying yeah uh, we're liberal but we're not that liberal that sends a message, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, the DA being recalled follows a few months ago the recall of several school board members as well. You know, parents in the school system were just angry over, I don't know if you want to call it wokeness, but I think that the message here to Democrats is that. Voters, including voters who are part of their base, are upset over basic quality of life issues, not just prices, but crime, the impact of massive amounts of homelessness. And I don't know what the Democrats can do about this between now and this fall, given the makeup of their most vocal base. But I think this is something that is is going to definitely come back and bite them in yeah. November, unless they pivot.
0: Well, that that's right. I mean, whether you have you know a sister soldier moment or whether you have, uh, as Reed Tashera says, a, a Chessa Bodine moment, um, they have to make it clear that they do take public safety very, very, very seriously. And look, they've said the right words coming back to Biden. I mean, Biden has said over and over again, I don't favor defunding police. I want to increase funding for police. You know, I I am not the defund the police guy. Um, But sometimes you need to say it over and over again. Saying something 10 times is not sufficient. Um, And a a reminder of that. Okay, so, Karen, big night tonight in Washington, D.C., big night January 6th committee rolling out the first of its nationally televised hearings. I want to get, you you know, your take, what you are looking for, what you expect. And let's do that right after this. Look, you don't need me to tell you that inflation is really bad. I mean, from cringing at the pump to getting an eye-popping check at your favorite restaurant, inflation is hitting all of us where it hurts, and it really hurts. That's why I started using Upside. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out. Because with every purchase, I'm earning cash back thanks to Upside. Look, this is not too good to be true. It actually works the way they say it does. So to get started just download the free Upside app in the App Store or Google Play. Use my promo code BULWARK and get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. And next, claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. Check in at the business, pay as usual with a credit or debit card, and get paid. In comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, you can earn three times more cash back with Upside. You can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week. That's probably why they have a 4.8 star rating on the App Store. So again, this is what you can do. Download the free Upside app and use promo code Bulwark to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your very first purchase of $10 or more using promo code Bulwark. Okay, we are back with uh, Karen Tumulty of The Washington Post. You know, I, Karen, I'm, I'm struck by reading a lot of the media accounts of What to Expect Tonight. And realizing that that nobody is really totally sure what's being done, which is kind of remarkable when you consider how high profile all of this is, how many reporters are on this story, how many people are involved. And yet there does seem to be the possibility that we might be surprised. What, what do you think uh, is what are you uh, expecting from tonight?
1: Well, I think it is, first of all, kind of high risk to be doing this in prime time. Hmm. I mean, they better deliver the goods here. Yeah. But I think too many people are focusing on the wrong things. Do I think this is going to change the dynamic in these midterm elections? No. Do I think Donald Trump's most ardent supporters are going to suddenly say, oh, now I get it? No. No. And, and, you know, it's coming at the same time, coincidentally, as the anniversary of the Watergate break in. And so I've been thinking about Watergate a lot. And if you think about what the real impact of those hearings and of that Congress's role, yes, Richard Nixon had to leave office. But the fact is, the real lasting impact of it was people realizing that there had to be some constraints put on executive power. And there were a lot of legislative reforms that were made in the wake of Watergate that did that. The second thing, though, is that a real cynicism set in with the American public about government and about politics and about politicians. And I think there's a possibility of that as well.
0: Yeah, I, I am struck by, I was, I've was i been thinking a lot about the Watergate hearings as well, and, and I'm, I'm struck by the fact that this is not then, that this will not be the way it was back uh, in the 1970s when we had three networks and we had a shared media culture, and Americans watched that, and opinions were changed by all of that. And unfortunately, the people who most need to watch these hearings tonight will not watch them. Fox News is not carrying them, and of course we're going to get a counter-narrative that will uh, dominate in the alternative reality silos of many of the people that, that follow the president. So I do think the the contrasts are going to be very, very dramatic. So you say it's high risk and they need to deliver. What do they need to deliver? What is it that they need to do?
1: I think that the people who are watching are gonna have to see something they didn't see before, yeah. whether it's in the testimony of of the people they are bringing forward, or whether it's in the images that, that people see. And, you know, of course, the behavior of Donald Trump and top officials in the White House is going to be front and center. But I think they would do a better service to the country if they also make it clear that they are looking forward. The fact that Congress has not done anything to fix the Electoral Count Act in a year and a half since this happened is it's appalling.
0: It is. It's not just appalling. It is such egregious political malpractice. It is so obvious. And uh, that seems to be within reach to fix that act and yet they have spent all of their time talking about other things that are not going to happen. And I, I, I so can you explain why? Because this, this, this one seems like the lowest of low-hanging fruit.
1: I think it is completely inexplicable. It is a dereliction of duty on the part of everybody in Congress. I mean, this is a fire they can put out. And if they don't do this and you couple it with a lot of the things that we are seeing happening in the states... You are potentially, if 2024 is a close election, a closer election, we are going to see people actually have the power in their hands to succeed in overturning the results.
0: I completely agree with you. The folks at the Defend Democracy Project uh, put out an email earlier this morning you know talking about the the need for the committee to put out a full narrative and they said look you know what are the hearings about it's about trump and his allies inciting violence and their ongoing plot to sabotage our elections and threaten our freedoms it's about an attack on our country not just congress or members of congress it is about americans seeing the evidence of a criminal conspiracy to overturn the election a cover-up and the ongoing plan to sabotage future elections it's about holding people accountable. And interesting, they do sort of a, uh, you know, do and don't. I want to can I just walk this through and see whether you agree or not? And this is, again, this organization, Protect Democracy Project. They're saying, do focus on the future, the ongoing threat. Don't let this be about a one-time event of the past. Do talk about sabotaging or overturning elections. Don't talk about stealing or subverting elections. That seems to be equivalent, but- uh, do focus on what they want to achieve, don't focus on a single day's event. So let's start there. Um, I think that's right. What do you think?
1: I absolutely think that's right. And again, as much as there is a large segment of the population that would really like to see Donald Trump brought to account for this, it is more important by a lot to make sure it doesn't happen again. And it's not just a Trump thing. It is now a systemic danger.
0: So here's a couple of these other do's and don'ts, which I found interesting. Do, talk about a faction of Republicans, Trump and his allies, uh, a lawless faction, MAGA Republicans, et cetera. Don't hold anyone who has been a Republican responsible for this. Don't say that it's all Republicans. You know, try to isolate them. Also do, Call January 6th an attack on our country or an attack on America or on Americans. Call it an insurrection. Don't call it a riot or a protest. Don't make it about Congress or the Capitol. I also think that's good.
1: Uh, I do think that's good, although I don't know that not making it about Congress and the Capitol, maybe just because that's where the images are going to be. But Congress is going to be the place where some stuff could actually potentially get done. I don't have a lot of hope for the state legislatures.
0: But I think the, the insight here is that a lot of people, you know, have, you know, you mentioned this low trust in government. They don't like Congress. They have to feel that this is about the country and about them. And I don't know, I just a few minutes ago was looking at this new Pew study out, you know, showing public trust in government. And it is close to all-time lows. I mean, it is brutal. So I guess, you know, confidence in government recovered a little bit uh, during the 80s and after 9-11. But today, what is it, uh, 29% of Democrats and democratically independent say they trust government just about always or most of the time compared with 9% of Republicans. So I, I guess anything that shifts from the D.C. institutions to the broader country, at least I, un- I understand the thinking there.
1: Well, okay, I I will I will give you that point. And yeah, it's, you know, democracy needs to function.
0: No, democracy needs to function. So again, looking at this hearing tonight and you point out this is high risk, high, possibly high reward, but also a, a downside. We've had multiple reports of, you know, Trump world, MAGA world, you know, preparing to have a media counterpoint. But I'm really struck by the fact that You know, I I wonder what's going on in Kevin McCarthy's mind. Not not too long, because I don't think a lot's going on there. But they made the decision not to participate in this committee. So unlike most hearings of this kind, there's going to be nobody up there defending Trump. There is no one who will be defending the MAGA version or even trying to push back on the dominant uh, narrative from from the majority. And I wonder whether or not there's going to be a sense of what well, this was really. We talk about political malpractice by the Democrats, whether this is going to, at the end of this, we'll go, well, that was one of the dumbest moves by Republicans not to have any stake or say in this committee.
1: I, I think that a lot of this is going to hinge on how the committee itself behaves. And I don't have a good feel for that. We saw during the whole Russia investigation you know, the House Judiciary Committee was prone to stunts. I I mean, I remember uh, a congressman bringing in a bucket of fried chicken when uh, Bill Barr didn't testify. I I mean, those if the committee conducts themselves in a way that Americans find to be credible and responsible, yes, I do think that Republicans potentially are going to uh, regret not participating. And again, my formative experience, one of them in Washington, was covering the Iran-Contra hearings. Mm. It was a bipartisan select committee, uh, and it was also House and Senate. And there were credible Republicans on the committee who did defend the administration, but they were also there you know, you could see them as as good faith actors in all of this.
0: Yeah, that was one of the high points. You know, and I wonder, though, we, we talk about how the media has changed, but also how the public has changed in terms of its uh, its uh, its attention span, that there was a tolerance for the way congressional committees operate, which can often be incredibly tedious and annoying, That a, a tolerance that we had in the 70s and the 80s that we may not have right now. But, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, uh the the house uh, the the earlier house committees on on russia where, you know each of the representatives felt this was their moment in the sun and it really became disjointed there were no follow up questions it was uh, uh it was very very uneven so you know this is one of my questions have they learned their lesson from that and, and i don't mean this to be cynical but do they understand that they are putting on a show and i don't mean that in a pejorative way do they understand that they are putting on a primetime show This is not just simply going to be, you know, congressman, you know, grandstanding. It's a pretty solid committee. They seem to have gotten it. What did you make of the fact they hired a former ABC News executive to help produce some of the the videos?
1: I think that was smart because who is going to better understand that every minute in prime time is very very precious exactly and also that the narrative has to move right it has to sort of take viewers by the hand and and go in a progression which is exactly what didn't happen in a lot of these earlier hearings because like you said it was each member's moment in the sun i would also by the way Say that that was also the case with the Benghazi hearings as well. There's really not any place to take that, but it, it is uh, it is a tendency when you when you get a member of Congress in front of a, a camera that that's often what you get.
0: That's a dangerous place. So, uh, I'm reading this, uh, a Politico story that was posted earlier this morning uh, about the hearings, and they describe the. The missing man of the January 6th hearing being uh, Mike Pence. Uh, The January 6th uh, select committee's hearings are all about one man, and it's not the one you think. It is Mike Pence. So we hear reports that some of his aides have been in discussion. Uh, You know, give me your thoughts about Mike Pence. My my colleague uh, Jonathan Last has a piece in The Atlantic uh, that says that Democrats should treat Mike Pence as an American hero, because if it wasn't for Mike Pence, you wouldn't be having these hearings. You might not even have a republic. So, you know, your, your thoughts about Mike Pence and the role that he played on January 6th.
1: You know, I agree as as, you know, he he refused to do the thing that his boss wanted him to do. And he he made his refusal very public He made his reasons for refusing very public. And um, I do think that the country owes Mike Pence a very, very deep debt for that act. Now, Now we are discovering, too, from reports, at least, that his staff and he were very well aware that there was potential physical danger to him. From all this. It wasn't just political danger. They actually went to the Secret Service and talked to them about this. Um, so yes, I, I do think that there, you know, there were some acts that day of of great importance to the country. His, I think, Congress reconvening and doing its job. And and we should be grateful for those.
0: Well, we should be grateful because the more you think about it, the more surprising and extraordinary it is because he spent four years being this you know, complete sycophantic toady. And yet when it came to this moment, he not only showed some independence, but showed the kind of courage that so many other Republicans failed to do over and over and over again. And I do think that it is worth spending time thinking about, well, what if he had gone along with Trump's demands. I mean, at the time, do you you remember what you thought at the time when you first heard that, you know, there were people who thought that he could just simply refuse to count the votes? I personally thought that's just crazy. That's just nuts. That's just fringe stuff. Now we realize that it was very serious. It was very serious coming from MAGA world. The pressure on him was immense.
1: And the pressure that was on him was just so intense. Yeah.
0: So I, I'm going to be very interested in this. So what do you make of the stories that Jared Kushner had washed his hands of the Trump administration, that he had just had enough and that shortly after the election, he and Ivanka decided they were just going to you know, not be part of this anymore and move down to Miami. But this is going to be in a new book, I guess, because I am cynical, as you know. I'm thinking I have read so many of these Jared Ivanka spin stories like, don't blame us. We weren't there. We didn't have any fingerprints on it. So I guess I have a little bit of skepticism about Jared's attempt to sort of, you know, in you know retrospectively whitewash himself. What do you think?
1: Yeah, there's definitely some efforts at reputation laundering going on here. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think that this is all going to be in a book, but Peter Baker and his wife Susan Glass are, are writing or are just finishing and that will be published this fall. But they very responsibly point out that even though what whatever's reputation laundering's going on here, that their decision to step away at that moment essentially left behind only the crazies. It was not a principled decision in many ways. Uh, If there was ever a moment when there needed to be some ballast in that White House, that was it. And so I don't think it necessarily speaks well of them at all.
0: So this is a very interesting point, because one of the things that we'd heard over and over and over again from people in the administration was that they justified sticking around because they they needed to be that ballast that and they would say that if if I'm not in the room, the crazies are going to dominate. And This is a perfect example of that, right? That the 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 grownups who decided I'm I'm backing out of this, I'm not going to be part of this. What do they do? They created this vacuum for Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Lynn, you know, and all all the crazies who came in and we see the consequence of all of that.
1: And of course, the evidence that um, makes you a little skeptical of all of it is, you know, we have all seen the videos of this behind backstage when Trump went out and spoke at that rally that day. And, you know, Ivanka's right there.
0: She's right there. Um it, it is interesting that we continue to learn new information about all of this, including the, I think some of the most recent information being that uh, that Trump was quite serious about going to the Capitol that day. In fact,, uh, the Secret Service scrambling uh, in order to set up a motorcade. It, it It did not work out. But apparently we came very, very close to the President himself going with the mob to the capitol, which again, underlines his role in all of this, but also what a close run thing this whole thing was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, and again, this was reporting by my Washington Post colleagues and it's so many times what we're learning now is how close we came to things that would have been even worse.
0: Yes. And yet, and I'm guessing that the vast majority of elected Republicans kind of would kind of roll their eyes or shake their heads about what we're talking about because they understand how how horrific it is. And yet Donald Trump continues to be the dominant figure in the Republican Party. So what do you make about the speculation that Donald Trump might announce that he's running in 2024, that he might announce that next month? Do you think he's going to?
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. Or whenever. I mean, he's he has absolutely no reason to take himself out of the running, because the minute he does, he becomes irrelevant.
0: Absolutely, and he understands that. He, I mean, he understands that at a visceral level. The moment he says, "I'm not running," then then the bottom drops out. The phone stops ringing. The rings are, are no longer cast. All of that, you know, people don't troop down to Mar-a-Lago. So, in order to stay relevant, he needs to at least keep the speculation going. But is there a downside to getting to making it formal? to say in the middle of the midterm campaign to say, I am running for president, this is a real thing?
1: You know, I guess I could argue it either way. Yeah. Um, but by saying it, he, he would freeze just about anyone else who's positioning themselves to run with the possible exception of DeSantis. I, I mean, and I, when I say anyone else, I'm not talking about the Chris Christie's of the world who are playing to a different part of the Republican Party. But if he says he's running, can somebody like Ted Cruz really be doing anything no. overt to put himself into position or even, no. you know, nailing down fundraisers and stuff like that?
0: Well, the people that I'd be watching the most closely would be DeSantis and Mike Pence. Mike Pence seems to have you know, decided he's going to go for it. I I don't see it happening, but you know he he clearly uh, understands this dynamic. I I guess I'm I am mildly surprised that Desantis has not yet blinked, but I also understand that he's running for re-election and maybe it's premature. Maybe he's just simply waiting around to see whether Trump will will run. But uh, if Trump does get in, I think it's an indication that he's kind of looking over his shoulder at Desantis and thinking, you know, I I, I need to stamp this out right now. I need yes. to freeze the field right now. I cannot let this thing, you know, grow past the midterm elections. So I think in some ways it would be a an indication that he's uh, getting a little bit antsy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, uh, you know, the rooster and the sunrise when the midterm elections, if they go as well for Republicans as it appears they are going to, Trump will guaranteed step in and take I, credit.
0: I totally agree with that. And, and of course, um, we we've seen this pattern over and over again that people will always m- misread or overread uh, the result of the midterm o- elections um and it's just just inevitable i mean you know people thought after Repo- i mean i'm going to get a little bit nerdy here you know people thought after the you know huge republican gains in 1938 that Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was absolute toast. Of course, he was reelected next year. We all remember Barack Obama, the absolute shellacking that uh, Democrats took in 2010. And Republicans were absolutely certain this meant that Barack Obama was going to be swept out of office. And of course he was reelected. We've seen this again and again. In
1: 1994. I, and I was going to mention, same thing. 96. Yes.
0: And even though that pattern has happened now, there are some counter arguments to this. I mean, the, the uh, you know, the Democratic gains in um, in 2006 did indicate what was going to happen in 2008, but, but it certainly does not, it does not make it inevitable. Um, but Trump and the Republicans will think that it does. I mean, they will, the triumphalism will be, um, intense That's a nice way of, of putting it. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right about that. Karen Tumulty, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciated it.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. And I look forward to talking to you again.
0: And we will. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we're going to do a special all-star Bulwark hot takes on the first televised hearing by the January 6th committee. So put that on your calendar. Thanks.